This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Certainly making public health political was so damaging to our response, and it has never been political before. And I think that really cost a lot of lives. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Smart Women, Smart Power is partnering with Girls Security for Women's History Month to facilitate conversations between young national security scholars and established national security leaders. This conversation features Girl Security Scholar Sruthi Kadakam and Dr. Gigi Granville, Senior Scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an Associate Professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. We discuss the holes in U.S. biological policy revealed by the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Granval and Sruthi, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Good to be here. It's great to be here. Well, Sruthi, let me start with you before you get into your conversation with Dr. Granval. The COVID-19 pandemic has served as a reminder that biological threats are dangerous and can cause mass disruptions. Is this why you chose this topic or is this an issue that you've been studying? I think it's a combination of both. It definitely was a happy accident that I started doing the Girl Security Scholars Program and my research at the same time as the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think both experiences kind of informed each other. My research focuses on the gaps in U.S. biodefense strategy and policy. And in my identification of those gaps, I saw parallels in our response to the COVID-19 pandemic that directly related to how these gaps translate into a lack of access to healthcare and a lack of a structured and efficient response. And what made you want to talk to Dr. Granval about it? So Dr. Granval has been studying biodefense and biological policy from a variety of different angles. And in my research, I came across so many of her papers and her research on this topic. So I knew that I had to talk to her about this and get her take on these different issues from her perspective, given her position as both a scientist and someone invested in policy and strategy. Well, I'm going to turn the interview over to you now. Great. Hello, Dr. Granwell. It's very nice to meet you. My first question is more general. So biological threats usually fall into one of three categories, natural, deliberate, and accidental. So what, in your opinion, are the most pressing bio threats to the United States? And are we adequately prepared to respond to them? Sure. Well, first of all, Thank you so much for inviting me here and please call me Gigi and your recitation of my papers. I'm just going to have to put you down from my tenure committee. So be prepared for a call at some point on that. As far as natural, accidental, and deliberate threats go, I think it's just a matter of trying to be inclusive. There was a time when we were so focused on deliberate threats uh, right after September 11th and the anthrax letter attacks that people started to see a degradation of our preparedness and our planning for naturally occurring threats. And so there was this thought that, you know, we need to be able to address 
anything, no matter what happens. And there are a lot of commonalities between, you know, how you would prepare for a deliberate attack, how you would prepare for a naturally occurring event, and also, you know, accidents, you know, humans error. So that that's something that needs to be prepared for as well. But I think we have seen over the last year that whatever we thought we were doing to prepare for naturally occurring threats, that we could do quite a bit more. And so our surveillance and our willingness to flip the switch and to really prepare early when the problems are smaller and easier to deal with, that's something that we need to get much better at. Absolutely. I definitely agree. You made an interesting point about how preparation for deliberate biological threats can inform our preparation for natural bio threats. In my research, I've seen that, you know, natural, accidental, and deliberate bio threats are kind of stovepiped a little bit and they're kind of separated from one another. Do you think that to be the case or do you think we need to work towards integrating our responses to all three of these types of threats? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's really interesting. And it's, and there's been this push and pull over the years. There are advantages and disadvantages of relying on, on one versus another, you know, being stovepiped or having everything considered together. You'd think it would be better to have everything like we're going to be prepared for everything all the time and we'll see these events. We'll be ready, whether it's whatever uh, the source is. But sometimes that leads you down a path where you're not thinking correctly about the ways that biology, for example, could be misused by a thinking enemy and how different it would be clinically and what signs you would need to look for. So I think there needs to be conversation between people who are focused on these different sources for uh, biological problems. But you do need to have people who are solely focused on what a deliberate attack would would look like, what kinds of measures do we need to have um, to prevent it, to detect it, um, what kinds of uh, ways that we could tell the difference between something that's naturally occurring and deliberate because otherwise, if you don't have people who are focused on the source of, you know, an outbreak being deliberate or natural, you're, you might be missing part of the picture. So I think the most people who are in the biological sciences are prepared to think of naturally occurring threats and, and to think along those lines, even if we're not quite as prepared as we should be. But thinking that something might be deliberate requires some special thinking and planning to be able to address. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So I think institutional learning and being able to kind of compare notes when it comes to deliberate and natural threats is important, but they should also be established very clearly as their own separate entities with their own separate, you know, priorities and stakeholders. My next question is also quite general. So in your opinion, where are the gaps in U.S. biodefense strategy? The COVID-19 pandemic has revealed that there are quite a lot of them, but I'm very interested to hear what you think are the most pressing ones, you know, whether they're legislative, financial, social, structural, leadership-based. Yeah, I think that it's going to be really important over the next few years when things are a little bit better. I don't think we're going to be able to see COVID in our rear view mirror for some time, even as we get vaccinations and a much more accelerated pace. I think, you know, it's going to probably be endemic and there's the whole world to be able to uh, vaccinate and the potential for having to update vaccinations. And so I think this is going to be with us for some years. But 
I think it is still going to be important for us to look back and look at the initial responses that the U.S. had and what decisions were made and how things came to be. And I think there's going to be a temptation to just blame one thing or another for many of the problems. And I think leadership is certainly has been a big problem in why the U.S. did not respond well, but it's not the only factor. And so I think it's going to be important to, to dissect that and to look at documents and actually try and piece together what happened and where things could be improved. There were problems with the funding of public health. There were problems with the regulation of uh, diagnostic tests. Certainly, we were not taking advantage of modern biotechnologies in uh, uh, genomic sequencing early on in the pandemic. So there's a, there's a lot that could be improved. And learning from the clinic is another big uh, issue I have. I mean, we had over 100,000 people receive convalescent plasma before we had an inkling that maybe it was of limited effectiveness, which is ridiculous. We shouldn't, we should learn more from people who are ill faster. And while the U.S. has been inhibited in that way because we don't have a national healthcare system, we have computers and, you know, email and, and ways to communicate. So I, I don't think it's an excuse. But I think a big thing that is missing from um, from our structurally, from the way that we approach biology, is that very often it is the province of health and human services. And it's, you know, health issues and anything like that is just, it's their problem. And I think an understanding of biological security and health security issues um, needs to be part of like a political sort of training. So, you know, people who work in the White House have a a better sense of nuclear deterrence and, and those kinds of security issues than I think they do of health security issues. It's part of the policy training. And I think that needs to be something that other, you know, that we have in the future, that people have a greater understanding, even if it's not their full-time job. I know you can't see me, but I've been vigorously nodding to everything you're saying. I cannot agree more. Uh, You made an interesting point about how, you know, health issues are sort of shoehorned into the Department of Health and Human Services and not really seen outside of that field. I personally think that biodefense is a national security issue. COVID-19 has made that abundantly clear. And I tend to think that if issues are relegated to public health, they may not be thought of as as important as issues that are, you know, sort of labeled as national security issues. So do you think that's something that, you know, the scientific community and the biodefense policy community should be pushing for that, you know, biological threats and even naturally occurring pandemics should be labeled of as and thought of as national security issues. Do you think that'll help improve policy response or will that help like strengthen structural response? Or is that something that won't really affect the outlook on biological policy? I hope that that's one of the lessons of this past year. And I, I mean, we've been for years, um, we've put on tabletop exercises. We've given, we've tried to present that, you know, a pandemic could have 
more than health effects. You know, it could affect your economy. It can affect, uh, you know, all kinds of other things, your national security, all of these things. And yet I don't think it's become apparent that a lot of people were not paying attention to those lessons. So I hope that people realize just what a devastating effect a disease can have on economies and, uh, and lives and beyond medical issues. But this is this has been a process for sure. It was after there was a very influential report that came out after HIV AIDS um, was devastating nations within Africa and um, threatening security and stability. And, and that was the first time that a disease was classified as a national security threat to my, to my knowledge. And I think this is a much more fast moving disease than, uh, than HIV AIDS was. And hopefully we can contain it so that it's not going to have the same devastating effects long term. But it's been a process of people realizing that disease is it's not contained um, easily by borders and it's also not contained easily within hospitals. You know, you really it really has an effect on on all aspects of society. Going back to your point about biological threat exercises. So there have been a lot of sort of landmark threat exercises throughout the years. Atlantic Storm, Dark Winter and more recently Urban Outbreak 2019. So through my research, I read through these reports and I focused on the recommendations that came out of these threat exercises. And what I noticed is that a lot of the recommendations are the same, whether the threat exercise was run in 2001 or 2019. So that kind of begs the question, what's preventing these recommendations from these threat exercises from being turned into policy? What's the gap and what's the hurdle between these recommendations and policy implementation? Yeah, that's a, it's such an excellent question that I really truly wish I knew the answer to having been involved a little bit with Dark Winter, definitely with Atlantic Storm and Event 201 and other exercises. And then there were also national exercises. I think they can be really influential for the people who have experienced them and they see like, wow, I can't get information from my public health departments that's going to answer the questions that um, I need, that I think I need to know to be able to make decisions or or even um, in during Atlantic Storm, it was clear for some people that they didn't realize that the number of cases that were detected almost certainly meant that there were many more that had not yet been detected yet or people who were infected and traveling, going to places. And so the problem was almost certainly going to get to be much bigger very quickly. And so these kinds of realizations that now we have lived through with COVID, they were just not taught or not experienced in a way that that made a profound change on the people who make policy. And I think that gets back to the need for people who are making policy and who have are in the room where decisions are made to have an understanding of health issues. I mean, this is not necessarily related to infectious diseases, but I think about, you know, the decision that was made by our intelligence community when they decided how they were going to get Osama bin Laden, they uh, chose to use a cover story that involved a vaccinator and what a devastating effect that has had 
on public health and um, on global health. And of course, nobody could complain about, you know, the mission or, or what they did. But wouldn't it have been nice if there was somebody in the room who could have said, you know, can we think of another alternative or just to have confidence that other things were thought of before, you know, eroding trust in, in public health in an area, you know, where we really need public health to be working? Right. That makes a lot of sense, especially because I think, you know, scientists and physicians, healthcare providers definitely speak one language when it comes to their research and their area of expertise. And policymakers and legislators speak a completely different language. And there definitely is a need for someone or some many people to be able to reach across the aisle and connect those two completely different sets of priorities, stakeholders, and responsibilities. So I definitely agree. So I want to pivot a little bit to the 2018 U.S. biodefense strategy. So something I noticed in my research was that biodefense strategy clearly outlines plans and priorities for the country during a pandemic. So given that we have this beautiful document that tells us what we need to do, when we need to do it, and how we need to do it, how did we end up here? So is our current situation administration-specific? Or is it because of a shortfall in our biodefense strategy? Hmm. Yeah, that's really well put. It's not just the biodefense strategy. It was also the national security strategy. If you look at the 2017, so within the last administration strategy, it was a very similar language as has been in other national security strategies on how important it is to deal with um, biological threats, no matter their origin. And yes, so it's absolutely the words were there. They were not implemented. And and that's why I think it's really important for us to figure out what went wrong. And there's been a lot of talk lately about the 9-11 Commission. And I don't know if that's exactly the right model for for looking into and uncovering what happened with COVID. But there needs to be some mechanism where the actual timeline is uh, looked at and the decisions that were made. My personal hunch is that I think there would have been problems no matter what administration was in place and um, with this pandemic, that there would have been missteps, that there would have been all kinds of challenges. As it's a new disease, there, there would be assumptions made that were incorrect. But what I think was not done were, you know, things were not like red tape wasn't cut to, you know, to be able to make decisions happen faster. And that, you know, leadership, health leadership didn't smooth the way to course correction. So I, I think there was not enough flexibility in the in how to address the threat and not enough resources thrown to the threat early on. But I I would love to see a very detailed commission look through and go through it all because I think that a lot will be learned. And I think a lot of the things that we think happened maybe will not be borne out by the evidence. Certainly making public health political was so damaging to our, our response and it has never been political before. And I think that really cost a lot of lives. Absolutely. I think, you know, this COVID-19 situation, as you said, revealed a lot of, you know, ancillary effects of a biological threat that scientists may not have anticipated. Like you said, the politicization of public health measures was definitely something that surprised me as well. 
So you mentioned 9-11 and the 9-11 Commission, which eventually led to the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security. So do you anticipate any structural or administrative changes taking place as a result of COVID-19? If so, what do you think they are? I mean, we've already seen the National Security Council Directorate for Global Health Security and Biodefense be reestablished. I tend to think that's a step in the right direction. Do you think that there's anything else that will happen or is there something else that you hope will happen? Well, we've already also seen that the head of the Office of Science and Technology Policy is a biologist for the first time. So that's a new development. I would like to see CDC take uh, a much bigger role. And I hope that that happens, that the CDC becomes even more of a premier public health institution than they were before. I think we have to be open to not, you know, making things better than they were before and, and preparing and just not saying, well, public health was underfunded. I think we can do a lot of public health better. And I think a more federal response might be more appropriate. This is a little bit veering off your question, but the whole question of public education, that's another sector that was really damaged a great deal by the last year. A lot of private schools continued throughout the year, but we have really underserved people who go to public schools, many of whom have not been in school since March. And that has also national security considerations for the future. So I think there's a lot to do. And I, I think there, there are structures that we have already. I don't think I would recommend building a, another department so much as, as strengthening the ones that we have. Agreed. Definitely. I, I tend to think the National Security Council is a really great jumping off point because it's so good at interagency collaboration. And as you said, biodefense is kind of spread among a lot of different departments. So being able to really improve interagency collaboration within the existing structure is really important. And to speak to your point on public education, I think something that the COVID-19 pandemic revealed is that, you know, biological threat does not just affect people and human health. It affects all aspects of human life. So I personally would love to see biological threat response and planning teams consist not just of scientists and physicians and policymakers, but economists, education professionals, labor relations analysts, media professionals to kind of control media and communications. So I definitely think our response and planning to biological threats should be as diverse as the impacts of the biological threats themselves. That's really well put. And I'd add another in there in that uh, the EPA has not been um, as as out there as we would like to see too. I mean, you know, these are this is a respiratory pathogen. And while we have done a lot to promote masks and now we're doing, you know, we're rolling out vaccines, it's all great. But indoor air quality is also really important and uh, we should be doing more for making air healthy in in public buildings and in office buildings because, you know, air is really important. And just to get to the school thing again, um, we have neglected that. And there's many studies that show that students learn better and they're healthier if there is healthy air for them to breathe. So it's pretty startling how there are real improvements in test scores. So our brains work better when, uh, when we're breathing good air. Absolutely. I think that's definitely something 
that needs to be considered moving forward. You know, our COVID-19 response should not focus just on COVID-19, but on all of the underlying conditions and underlying issues that made our COVID-19 response so much worse. So just to kind of wrap up this conversation, I want to ask you, you know, now we're pretty squarely in the Biden administration. So what policies or changes do you see as most necessary, not just to fill the holes revealed by COVID-19, but to strengthen U.S. biological policy and, of course, by extension, global health policy? There are some things that worked really well and I would like to see them expanded on. And this is a uh, maybe a little biased because I am a scientist, but one thing that has really worked in the last year is the that international scientific collaborations and the investment that was put into them really paid off because if this if this pandemic had occurred 20 years earlier i mean we we saw a little bit of what happened in uh in sars even though it was much much less serious virus in in many ways um in its transmissibility but in 2002, 2003, we did not have the same level of, of international collaboration with science that um, that we have today. And we didn't have, so things just could not move as quickly. Part of that was technological. You couldn't email somebody the sequence of, of uh, a virus at that time. And so you had to, to fly clinical samples around the world to be able to study them. And that was, uh, that was a huge barrier. But the investment into those collaborations and scientific research and all over the world, that that really paid off. And I think what we're seeing is that if we did more of that, that would benefit the world as well. In the U.S., we can feel pretty confident that even if you haven't had your vaccine yet, you know it's coming. And a lot of places in the world, people do not have that confidence. And when it comes to global health, if if we're not all prepared, then you know we're all kind of diminished. I mean, because it is it is about a little bit about the weakest link when it comes to preparedness and response. So I'd like to see more investment in being able to boost up other nations' vaccine manufacturing capabilities and their research and doing more uh, collaboration to, to kind of lift all boats when it comes to being able to respond to threats like SARS-CoV-2 or whatever the next flu is going to be, or whatever the next coronavirus is going to be, because there definitely will be others. And if other nations have more preparedness, then they will be better able to respond. I mean, these are questions that I think about all the time. And, you know, having the chance to discuss them with someone who is so knowledgeable on the issue was incredible. So thank you so much for volunteering your time for this. Shruti, your questions were just wonderful, and it was really such a pleasure to, to do this. I really enjoyed this. Shruti and Gigi, what a fascinating conversation. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you both so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast, and thanks to all of you for listening. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.